All right. I am here with Sadia Tour, Associate Professor, College of Staten Island, City University of New York, author of The State of Islam, Culture and Cold War Politics in Pakistan. Um, Sadia, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Justin. So, Sadia, you wrote this book, The State of Islam, Culture and Cold War Politics in Pakistan. And I was reading it, um, rereading it, because I read it when it came up. But I was rereading it, and, and I, ju- I guess, like, there's a there's a real force to the book, which is that it's very clearly a book that's against uh, something. <laughs> and, uh, and what it's against is what it's against is like this, uh, the stereotypes of Pakistan, which are so pervasive. So I, I wanted to talk, I wanted to first, like, let you talk about what it is that you are kind of fighting against in this kind of work that you're laying down like a, a different history of Pakistan um, since independence. Yeah, so, you know, the bits um, that are pervasive about Pakistan across the board, you know, whether we're talking about mainstream media or we're talking about even um, the alternative media in in the U.S., like, and I'm, I'm not even talking about NPR, I'm talking about same democracy now, right? Yeah, um, yeah. And also within the academy, right, um, for various reasons, which, you know, depending on how much time and energy you have, we can... No, I did. I want to ask you about that. In terms of South Asia studies and the politics thereof, right? Yes, Um, yes. So so there are these myths at different levels that are all really um, around Pakistan as this, like, Islamic state. Um, yeah. And 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 that 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 being the you know the way it was created and the reason it was created and then the teleology then becomes well and that's precisely why it is fucked up in the ways that it is fucked up now um, and that those ways are that it is you know the the sort of like most dangerous place in the world as Time Magazine once kind of you know headlined us in terms of like terrorism right mm-hmm. and. Um, that becomes sort of the organizing frame for any discussion on Pakistan is religious extremism slash terrorism, right? And I don't want to minimize the reality of that, right? Uh, because Pakistani yeah, which Pakistanis struggle against suffer. that. Yeah. Yes, Pakistanis yeah. struggle against that. Um, yeah. but, the, but that kind of gets, you know, uh, written out of the picture and it becomes sort of this this idea of like, as you know how these myths are, these stereotypes are, like all Pakistanis therefore are kind of like terrorists in waiting. Um, And just the way that all Muslims are, but Pakistan in particular, because then there is this whole, you know, connection to Afghanistan, right? And then the, the, the role that like South Asia, like, you know, the powers that be in South Asia also play in terms of framing things in a particular way. So I was mainly trying to write against these tropes because, you know, the reality is so much more complex. Um, not that Yeah, so the, yeah. The, the myth is like, you know, once upon a time, there was this, uh, you know, ambitious guy named Jinnah. This is, mm-hmm. And it's interesting. And, and he just decided to make a Muslim country out of nowhere. Because and, he wasn't uh, getting his way within, you know, with, uh, with, yeah. within the sort of mainstream politics of, of India. And so he decided to be the spoiler, right? Like Ralph yeah. Nader. <laughs> He decided to be the spoiler and he was like, well, I'm not playing with you anymore. And he threw, he took his marbles and he went off, right? Like literally yeah. that's the kind of um, 
way in which Vinay is treated, as opposed to seeing him in the kind of complex ways um, that we might see any other of those historical figures from that time period that were part of the well, national liberation struggle, right? Yeah, and there's something you say where you're like, you know, that, so the, there's this argument that Pakistan is an artificial nation, but then you kind of point out that, you know, show me a non-artificial nation. Then, I know. Right? I mean, it's as if like, <laughs> nationalism now is like some kind of primordial thing that human beings were born with, right? Which is yeah. obviously the myth that nationalism tells about itself, right? But sure. that this comes from, it's it's one thing to hear this from people who don't study nationalism uh, right. in any kind of scholarly way, but it's quite something to hear this come from people who are actually like, scholars of history or social science right um mm. and you're just like really so I, I don't understand are we saying that there are some natural nations in the world <laughs> they have no problems because they just know who they are because this is mm. the other you know this this kind of like way of thinking within pakistan too right so we've, we've discussed sure. this before about how much of this um kind of these kinds of myths circulate within liberal circles in pakistan as well right where we are taught that that's the problem. The problem is that this that we were established as this quote unquote Muslim country, and of course, you know that did set the stage for certain kinds of conversations and certain kinds of you know um, forces to have more power or rhetoric to have more power than others. So I don't want to minimize that, but this idea, like that kind of teleology, is what I wanted to kind of you know really attack. Is that there was right. no teleology. There were there there struggle every at every stage, right? to determine what this new nation is, to determine which direction it goes in and the, and which direction it ends up going in is really about, you know, the balance of power and who gets to wield that power and who gets to silence whom, right? Um, yeah. So that's really what the story was for me, right? And um, there's another there's another point you make, though, and I, I, I did, you, you alluded to it just a few minutes ago, but I want to get into it right now because uh -huh. I never thought of it until I reread this chapter where you talked about kind of the domination of the scholarship by Indianists. And uh, as a consequence... Yeah, it's sort of like India's the natural thing and Pakistan's the unnatural. Yeah, because thing. you know India has five thousand years of history. That's like it's like the 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 meme that comes at you all the time. Like India has yeah. five thousand, and you're like, but which India was that, right? Yeah. And like, I often yeah. think about like you know Aisha Jalal, who um, you know she was also a victim of this kind of uh, the power politics within South Asia studies, right? Because that she didn't get tenure at Columbia despite having many scholarly books to her name and then she amazingly sued right um and you can find you can actually find the um the case like the proceedings of the case online it's quite fascinating to see the arguments and um the the sort of evidence presented and stuff but Wait, who's this Aisha Jalal Aisha Jalal okay I don't know this case oh Okay, so I yeah, this is quite fascinating. So I believe it was in the 1990s. I forget exactly when, but she was at Columbia. She's a historian, and she was at Columbia, and uh, she uh, was up for tenure, and she didn't get it, and uh, she you know sued, which is very unusual for people to do, right? But because it's Aisha, she sued, and um, and because it's a you know it's a court case the proceedings are available which I hadn't realized until a few years ago when I was teaching supposed to be teaching a course on 
um, Pakistan in uh, at Penn. And so I was looking for, you know, ways to talk about the politics of South Asia in a kind of concrete way. And I came across the proceedings of her case. And, um, and, and like I said, they're fascinating. And among other things, uh, there in the, in the, uh, arguments is this little tidbit about how somebody who was not even on the committee that makes the decisions, but was, you know, how these things work in academia, right? Um, basically said, who was Indian and was not a historian, was not even, a, I think, a social scientist, said that there's no way that she could be the South Asia historian at Columbia because she studied Pakistan. <laughs> I see. So, yeah, I see. it was as sort of large as that, right? So, and, she, so she, uh, you know, I'm looking at her Wikipedia page. I, there must have been some settlement involving not yeah. mentioning mm-hmm. this case because oh, yeah. there's no... So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just... But like I said, the case itself, the judgment itself is... Uh, I think the judgment, but also the arguments are there, you know, if you want to go okay. look them up. So, yeah, so that, you know, so this is... For, like yeah, I said, for, yeah. for Pakistani liberals and 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 many leftists too, because we are really sort of brought up to be, if for good reason, to be very uncomfortable with the official narrative of Pakistani nationalism, and that's how it yeah. should be, I think, for everybody. Yeah, you should, as a progressive, exactly. that should be the first thing that you yeah. look at, you know, in in or, or hold, you know, in this kind of um, critical kind of gaze, right? Is what is the story that your powers that be are telling you about your country, right? Right. And so, but the sad part of that is that nobody really goes back, unlike Aisha, who, you know, did go back to the archives when she wrote her first book on, on Jinnah and the Muslim League struggle, right? Um, yeah. That nobody really goes back to the archives. And the archives, as we know, are so much more complex than um, the story that they tell is so much more complex than the story that you hear. So we've also been brought up with, with sort of this, you know, deep discomfort with the establishment of our nation state itself, right? Um, because of this idea that somehow this was a Muslim, uh, imagined as a Muslim state, which again, you know, what does that mean? I think that's what I was also trying to work through and what Aisha and her work has tried to work through is that that didn't necessarily mean any one thing. Right. right. That in itself was sort of an open field that could and was deliberated um, a lot. Right. And where you come down and who gets to win that debate really has to do with the balance of power at any given point in time. So so that was, you know, that was sort of my purpose in kind of writing the book. And I, the second part of that was then to kind of push forward the struggle. Right. The yeah. kind of like puncture that neat kind of teleology, but by showing just how many at how many points, you know, um, that particular kind of nationalism was challenged, that particular, you know, particular understandings of Islam were challenged, you know, um, and what kind of a state it should be was constantly up for grabs, right? Which was, yeah. was a revelation for me as well, right, as, as someone right. from Pakistan. But you also take on, I mean, so yeah, you t- you t- you go right to the beginning of, uh, you know, to the to those years of the forties and fifties. But you also, you know, an, a really important part of the book is also the the Ziaul Haq dictatorship mm-hmm. and the and the war, you know, the the U.S. war in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. really, and then mm-hmm. Russia. So um, that's also like, 
I think that that is also a real source of a lot of the myths, right? Is like, mm-hmm. you know, that's when that's when Pakistan supposedly became like, you know, the 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 hub of terrorism that the mm-hmm. US is supposedly there to watch, you know, to watch Pakistan mm-hmm. <laughs> as if it I wasn't like that a lot yeah. that is also. I mean, it's it is true that that was the the time um that yeah. that yeah. you can trace our current malaise too in terms of like yes. you know the proliferation of these militant um groups that all speak in the name of islam like you know there are a lot of people who for good reason refuse to call them islamist groups right um yeah because they want to kind of highlight the fact that these are groups that are cynically using um religion right um and not kind of trying to reify that idea so that so a lot of like the current problems that we are seeing in pakistan right that pakistanis themselves are facing including this rise in uh, vigilante uh, vigilantism around the blasphemy laws right yeah um, did did have their origins in the way in which bihar has like really destroyed um very consciously and strategically destroyed the you know sort of social and political and cultural you know history of like you know complexity of pakistan i try to narrow it in a particular kind of way and then you know institutionalize certain kinds of um laws and ways of thinking you know that have had such powerful resonances but for me yeah. i think that is a very important story um to tell for for people to understand what's happening now certainly yeah. but for me i think it was important to kind of pull the story back because that yes. you know yes. people don't don't pay attention and particularly in pakistan like even people who have lived through those periods um get so fixated like progressives in pakistan you know and i i have i'm very critical of many of the progressives in pakistan even the ones that are very well known for um for being so blinkered by the ziaul yeah. period and allowing yes. themselves to fall into those traps of thinking that progressivism basically just means worrying about like the taliban right like there's no, but it's so hard yeah mm-hmm. it's so it hard because it was what a period that was right i mean like oh absolutely a... and the scars yeah. are there and as i said the yeah. scars never heal because like yeah. so much of what is going on now is directly traceable to that but yeah. i wanted to kind of you know remind them that the <laughs> the shit yeah started to happen a lot earlier and i wanted to also because you know the, the because the the subtitle is the cultural cold war in pakistan I did want to also tell the story of Pakistan not just you know as as the story of this one country like just focusing right. on what's happening inside it but to place it within the broader geopolitics of the cold war right and then and then yeah and then even like so Afghanistan and Pakistan like in some ways the zia period and in you know and the whole war in Afghanistan is like a a search by the US to create a coalition to fight the left right i mean like mm-hmm. whatever the however you want to put however you think oh, yeah. about and the left right it. i mean the, the, that's what the cold war really had been about as we know right and i think that yeah. is also important for me is that there are certain parts of the world which you know anyone who is interested in the cold war the geopolitics of the cold war they know that you know so of course is vietnam right and the whole of southeast asia right yeah. everybody understands what the us was up to everybody understands what the us was up to in latin america right yeah. um every and and central america 
and everybody not everybody maybe but a lot of people now know what happened in indonesia for example right like right. for a long time i think indonesia indonesia was not part of these kinds of conversations around what the us right. did in the rest of the world right in its yeah. fight against communism um so the whole genocide of indonesian communists like i think you know yeah. it was a revelation to me at some point when i found out about it but pakistan right. is just never part of those stories right? right partly because obviously the us um role in pakistan was never as dramatic or openly dramatic as it was in yeah. indonesia and you know um right. and and uh in latin america but I wanted to kind of But it was indirect it was in those places. Yeah. Oh, it was I indirect in those yeah. places too, right? Like yeah. it's not oh, like yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean the School of Americas and all of that like training, you know, uh future dictators and like, you know, all of that. So that that much, you know, so I wanted to kind of again tell I didn't want the story of the relationship between Pakistan and the US in terms of the cold war to also be limited to dialhuk and the proxy war mm-hmm. in afghanistan right i wanted to remind people that, that that story had a prehistory and that that in itself had like created the possibility of what happened under dialhuk right like you couldn't have had a dialhuk if you hadn't had all this other stuff happen beforehand right 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 so right so the attack on the left had been ongoing you know obviously from within pakistan the establishment within pakistan that was deeply anti left um and then yeah. that made them uh you know natural partners with the us when it came to security pacts when it came to money when it came to you know kind of again the cultural cold war against communists right so where's uh, uh jumping to the present like where's um given the given the long-term alliance between Pakistan and China mm-hmm. where's the like where's the Pakistan Pakistan must be Pakistan's establishment must be feeling a little bit squeezed because the US is being so belligerent towards China now and those are like on the, the contrary two... I think they're feeling no? they're feeling a sense of freedom because um oh. And and this is not a good thing, by the way. Okay, <laughs> yeah. Tell me because what's. I, is, I've been wondering how Pakistan's positioning itself, like how Imran Khan. So and you know, are. the Pakistan, the Pakistani relationship with the U.S. from Dawlak onwards has yeah. been, um, you know, kind of rocky. Like during the Dawlak period was great because, you know, Dawlak was very happy to use the cover of the uh, proxy war to basically Dawlak was representing the Pakistani military. across you know as the head of the military um to kind of establish a you know a, a base of power in or ex- expand the 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 sort of um frontier of the the the, the military Pakistani military's uh influence into Afghanistan right yeah. and then post yeah. post the war and so of course the training of the mujahideen everybody you know people are familiar with yeah. that story right like the training of the mujahideen and the um safe harbor to the mujahideen and all of that but then of course what like dawla did to pakistan as part of that like the out the the sort of like um the effects of that war on pakistan is something that nobody really cares about outside of pakistan or knows about outside of pakistan right so the way in which drugs and um guns proliferated right um you know and and with all these these other kinds of social unrest that was taking place i mean we housed the uh, not very willingly necessarily housed one of the largest refugee populations in the world right yeah yeah 
Um, And besides that, obviously, it was the military dictatorship. There was a lot of of stuff going on in terms of struggles for democracy, struggles for social justice. Um, And during all of this period, Zia is also busy, you know, solidifying um, not just his own base, but like ensuring that left-wing forces have are squeezed as much as possible, if not eliminated completely, right? So, you know, he takes over the universities, he outlaws student unions, he basically politicizes the universities in the worst kind of way, right, by allowing the goons of the uh, Jamaat-e-Islami student wings to overrun the universities, right, and have no countervailing force in terms of having secular student politics, right? Um, And so very, very pointedly kind of taking over the important, uh, you know, institutions uh, of the country, the media, like at the lower level, of course, censorship at the top, but also sort of like, you know, the long term kind of thinking of like placing uh, people uh, who were loyal to, you know, the Jamaat-e-Islami or to that particular kind of deeply conservative worldview in key places in, in sort of the media and in, you know, in uh, the bureaucracy, right? Sort of like, you know, when I read Mahmoud Bamdani's uh, book on um, uh, the good Muslim, bad Muslim, and he yeah. has this long discussion of like the 30-year, um, you know, program basically that the u.s right religious right had and how they worked it was very familiar to me it read very much like the kind of way in long-term way in which um you know zia and uh and the jamaat islami kind of thought at that time so that's you know that became the beginning of today's story right to that degree in terms of like the what's happening in afghanistan the kind of turmoil that you see in Pakistan vis-a-vis the rise of the um, security agencies, intelligence agencies, and how much power they have in Pakistan. Uh, the rise of the, you know, the military was already, like, Ziaun Haq was, I think, the third by that point, like, the, well, the technically the third military dictator, right? Um, mm-hmm. There was Ayub Khan, there was Yahya Khan for a brief period, and then there was Zia. So already this country had not, and certainly the country had not had, like it had had one uh, set of national elections, right? After which uh, the army ensured that the Eastern wing became Bangladesh because they were unwilling to concede to the democratic demands of uh, people in the Eastern wings, right? Um, So all of that then kind of came home to roost during the Zia period where you have a country that has been where the democratic forces have been constantly struggling, constantly struggling. And I think people in Pakistan also have never contended, even progressives in Pakistan have never contended with what the loss of East Pakistan meant for the country. Because it wasn't just that we lost like over 50% of our population. We really lost a part of the country that had most of the Hindu um, Pakistanis, right? Um, that actually had a really vibrant left, communist left. I mean, there was, you know, there was, there were, uh, there was a communist party and communists active in what was called West Pakistan and is now what is Pakistan. But uh, East Pakistan and the Bengali uh, East, you know, East Pakistan Communist Party was really far advanced, advanced you know, in terms of like um, how hegemonic they were uh, within, you know, uh, East Bengal. And so that was 
you know, it just it changed the complexion of Pakistani politics completely, right? And put the left, I think, much more on a back foot than it would have been otherwise. So, I don't know how much continuity there is between, for example, Zardari, um, Benazir, and and Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto. But how do you think about? those times like how do you like in terms of like if we're, if you analyze it in terms of the left and and the mm-hmm. different kinds of ways of suppressing the left i guess yeah. mm-hmm. that that the third world countries have to do under imperialism um how does how do you how do you yeah talk about how you think about like the buto period and and the more recent buto period which isn't covered in your book yeah so, you know, the Bhutto period is a period of so much nostalgia for Pakistani progressives, many, like, many Pakistani progressives, not all. Um, and I think that's problematic because, uh, yes, it, it's really, it's tragic um, and horrifying, and it was at that time particularly, that a sitting prime minister was not just ousted in a military coup, but then hanged, right? Um, and I think that those scars have not left um, a certain kind of Pakistani progressive uh, politics either, right? But, and, and you know, the Bhutto period was um, an, an important period for understanding, you know, the potential for um, like a progressive politics in Pakistan, but Bhutto himself was not like an unalloyed progressive, right? He present, he wow. rode the tide of, you know, a strong uh, left-wing politics that had just started to come into its own in the 50s and 60s in Pakistan. He very consciously and smartly rode that tide, um, you know, pitched himself as the, the sort of representative of the people, you know, used the slogan of Roti Kapra or Makan, you know, food, yeah. clothing and shelter, right? Basic needs kind of thing. And he had many, like, uh, you know, solidly socialist um, people in his um, in his team when he was, like, you know, uh, fighting, right, when he was uh, electioneering. But he uh, is not someone that I um, personally can hold on to as some kind of, like, you know, beacon or, like, you know, right. uh, someone. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think he started the Afghan. I think he started the Afghan policy, right? I mean, he didn't. Yeah, and also, I mean, that, I, I, to be honest, I don't know the details of that. Yeah. But his, his um, so the things that they look back, you know, to with nostalgia, the progressives in Pakistan uh, with nostalgia is the fact that this was a period where secularism very much was, you know, part of the national um, kind of uh, popular culture, like, you know, on the media and all um, there was this like way of like being able to be secular openly, which you know happened under um, Ayub Khan too. Pakistan before Ziaul Haq, despite the you know all the debates kind of revolving around Islam, and despite the fact that the establishment, uh, whether it was the bureaucracy or later the military establishment, you continuously used uh, Islam as a way to undermine progressive politics. There was a, there was a lot more openness, right, to how um, how much space secularism had in Pakistan, uh, which completely ended, I think, with Ziaul Haq. And but Bhutto's problem was that he was not actually elected, right? right? And so the minute he came into power, what he started to do was undermine the 
leftists in his own um you know on his own team and in fact he purged his party the people's party of pakistan of right. the socialists right he um attacked you know uh, uh came down very heavy on labor unions right there was a lot of labor militancy under his um watch and he came down right. very very hard on that his foreign policy was very you know quote unquote anti imperialist right like there was a lot of yeah. like rhetoric except except in, except in Afghanistan although yeah, yeah. you know i mean but, some but, problems but, you know Saudi. but he also you know what people in pakistan like the the people who are kind of like the bhutto progressives choose to forget yeah. is that he played a really horrible role in terms of the war in um i shouldn't even call it a war it should not even be called a civil war it was really this this planned genocide uh, by the pakistani army right um yeah. because what happened right. is that um he did not win decisively in he won only the west pakistani vote but but uh, bhutto was not willing to to do yeah, that mujibur rahman mujibur rahman mujibur rahman so mujibur rahman technically should have been the prime minister of pakistan after those were the first national elections that pakistan had in 1971 25 years after you know 24 25 years after the creation of the country right this is how scared the pakistani establishment was of its own people that it refused to have elections right i mean of course under the military you couldn't have elections but um it just you know refused to let there be open national level elections and this was the first time that was going to happen and you know there was no you could say there was no clear victory for either of them but let's just face it mujib won right um mm. and so he technically should have been the prime minister of pakistan but because bhutto wasn't willing to let that happen and the army the pakistani army was much happier having bhutto there right even mm. though he had campaigned on this anti military platform right against ayub um he was happy to be the army's man in that sense right because it gave him power and i think pakistani progressives like forget that at their own peril that this person that they hold up as this hero um actually played a really horrible role when it came down to you know to like demo- democracy uh you know and and uh being an actual democrat in in the context yeah. of pakistani politics and then because of that because he was not really he was not a leftist and because he was um he did not build his base you know much like obama he did not really build his base in the time that he was there yeah. he then became very vulnerable to attacks by the religious right wing right? right which hated his secularism and then all the uh, you know sort of like um, the 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 capitalists that hated even the small reforms that he put in place that were called socialist right he nationalized a lot of industries for example right um and they were very upset at that as you can imagine um uh, but nationalizing you know nationalizing key industries doesn't make you a leftist right that was also we're talking about period of autarky in most parts of the third world right so um but they just couldn't they they couldn't even you know abide by that and even like just even the rhetoric the fact that the rhetoric of things like land reforms uh was something that was you know discussed openly even though it was clear that bhutto was not going to institutionalize any real land reforms the land reforms that happened under him were like a joke right right but even then they knew that this was not his, their man ultimately right and right. so um you know then that, that then resulted in him in the coup against him right so and then he saw that coming 
And he tried to make all these concessions to the religious right wing, which is why, again, you know, it's very useful to remind Pakistanis that the um, that the, the the sort of the, the declaration of the Ahmadi Muslims as non-Muslims happened mm-hmm. under Bhutto. He did that. Uh, the mm-hmm. declaration of you know Friday as the official weekend holiday uh, happened under Bhutto. The closing down of the turning of Pakistan into a dry state, prohibition state, happened under Bhutto. All of these were concessions that he was making because he wanted to stay in power and he was unwilling to do that in a way that would have meant like conceding power to the people, right? Yeah. And so that left him open to the coup by Zia, um, you know, and the rest of the day is history. And then, the, yeah, the rest is history. And then I, but I want to catch up because I haven't been following um, Pakistan politics um, probably Can I do a since. Quick sweep? Let's do a quick sweep. <laughs> yeah, let's do a quick sweep. Starting, let, let's start with uh, let's start with Musharraf uh, when Musharraf goes. But in order to understand what happens after Musharraf, I'm going to just talk a little bit about Musharraf's yes. coup. Please. So, so in the, the sort of like, um, let's say about a decade, a little over a decade between Diaul Haq's um, assassination uh, in 1988 and uh, Musharraf. Oh, can I stop and mention a, a case of exploding mangoes? Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Always happy that... to... <laughs> Always happy to do to oh. like mention case. It's such a fabulous, fabulous oh, what thing. A book. On, yeah, what, a book. what a great book. <laughs> that yeah, that's Muhammad Hanif at his best. I don't know if he's if he's ever going to be able to live up to that. But like, yeah, what oh, a yes. no, just, everybody listening to this, stop what you're doing, read that. Honestly, come back when you're done. Honestly, yeah. yeah. Pause, like pause the podcast. Pause the podcast. Go. Yes, go read. <laughs> yeah, cases like that. Goes, come back. So we had about eleven years of like a very unstable, quote unquote, democracy, where like uh, several governments came and went. Among them, Benazir Bhutto's and Nawaz Sharif. Right. So it was kind of a ping pong thing between Benazir would come to power, and then there would be like no confidence uh, motions, and then you know they. So nobody finished their term. The democratic term, even though this was a democratic interregnum, right? And Nawaz Sharif, who was um, basically the protege of Ziaul Haq, came into his own as a politician at this time. And he was very much at this time still kind of pushing um, very Ziaul Haq type politics, right? One of his like uh, infamous uh, initiatives was something called the Sharia Bill. All of this is performative politics. I think people need to understand, right? This is all performative politics, all about using religion as a you know political and so developmentally or economic growth wise there's not a lot going on in these there's years not a really. lot, there's not a lot going on um but then what happens is that in 1999 uh government um in a coup and there's a you know short story behind that also but basically what i wanted your listeners to remember is that that then sets up this kind of, uh, you know, intense rivalry between um, Nawaz Sharif and Musharraf. Like it's a very personal thing, which now has become in uh, over time became an anti-military um, thing. So the the Nawaz Sharif, the the uh, uh, Pakistan Muslim League Nawaz um, party, you know, because there are many versions of the Pakistan Muslim League, but the one that led by Nawaz Sharif was really the one, the um, 
party that kind of led the charge against Musharraf and held on to sort of a, a very pointedly held on to an anti-military pro-democracy program in the previous elections. So anyway, so Musharraf happens and Musharraf happens just like Ziaul Haq did at a time that was very opportune for um, the U.S. In, in many ways, right? And so we can also kind of see the kind of rocky relationship or the the complicated relationship between Pakistan and the U.S. unfold at this time. So under up until Zia, everything is great. The Pakistani military establishment is perfectly happy, you know, playing second fiddle to the U.S. and being their proxies because as long as they get the money to do what they want within the country, right, because their agenda is also to squash the left and to squash people's movements. And so they're very happy doing that. They get a lot of money um in under Ziaul Haq to do that which you know we know the story of then how he sets up all these proxies right to keep control of Afghan, Afghanistan and also kind of completely you know destroy um progressive movements and progressive politics within Pakistan itself right so you have the proliferation of all these sectarian groups you have militant sectarian groups right which are Sunni really Sunni they shouldn't be called sec- just sectarian because uh, they were very pointedly Shia militant groups, right? Um, and also the ones that were being sent off um, to Kashmir, right? So all of this happens. Then the Taliban basically are literally and figuratively the children of the Mujahideen, right? Um, they are born in the refugee camps in Pakistan. They are trained by the Pakistani military establishment, right? As part of their kind of long-term um strategy to maintain control of Afghan Afghan politics, right? And to sort of like basically uh, shore up their power in the the region. And all of that is happening under Benazir, you know, as well, Benazir and Nawaz Sharif, because really it's the military. And that, I think, is something that is so key for your listeners to understand, that the Pakistani military is really the the, um, institution to watch if you want to know what is fucked up about Pakistan. Could you call it the deep state? I mean, we call it the deep state now. I mean, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have that kind of currency, but really, it really is the deep state in the way that the the term has been used in, say, Egypt or like Turkey, right? Like that it is much more so than the U.S. For example, I've always heard it like uh, Pakistanis call it the um, the establishment. The establishment, yeah, that is yeah. much more the the terminology used in Pakistan. I occasionally call it the deep state, but um, but yeah, it is basically the same thing, right? Like no matter who is um, in power, none of the democratic parties have been able to control the military in any way, right? What changes is how well they play with the military. And the one thing that has been consistent is that Nawaz Sharif, because of, you know, that relationship, uh, that that um, that relationship with uh, Musharraf, like where they are like basically enemies, literally, of each other at a deep personal level, right? Um, every other government has tried to, you know, play with the military as much as possible, right? That has never really been fully possible under Nawaz Sharif, even though Nawaz Sharif couldn't control the military, right? Because it is so powerful. So the military in Pakistan now is the biggest economic force, right? It has its, like, pause in everything. Real estate, cement, cereal. Everything. I mean, the cereal (laughs) cement thing was always there, 
But now, like, yeah, everything, everything. It is the like the biggest economic force in Pakistan. And again, I want to um, mention if people are interested in following this, um, Aisha Siddiqui's wonderful book, Military Inc. Oh yeah. If people have not read that, I mean, it's a few years old now, but so is my book. And the the stuff that she says in there is still very relevant. The numbers will be different. Um, and a lot of the numbers she didn't have anyway, because obviously the military is not giving up those numbers. But I think she makes such an amazingly powerful case, um, you know, uh, to show. But that's oh, that's another question I have, though. Like, so with China, you know, mm-hmm. so that's, China's yeah, various... up to your China thing, right? OK, good, good. OK, so, good. yeah, don't, I haven't right. forgotten your question, Justin. So so that so that's the thing. So up until like, you know, recently, the relationship. Um, of the Pakistani military really was in terms of money, right? Because that's what it wants. It wants money. And it has been getting that money and that support from the U.S., right? Um, earlier, you know, because of the general Cold War imperative under the al because of the Afghanistan proxy war, right? And then since the al because it has basically been able to leverage um, its, its relationship with the Taliban, Right. Um, and so to kind of like play those politics with the U.S. establishment. Right. And so, you know, whenever you hear these stories in the U.S. media about how Pakistan is not a good ally and it's doing its own thing, I always feel like laughing because, you know, it's as if like, you know, Americans are like children. They don't understand real politics. Right. Um, that countries do not like they're not friends. Right. Everybody's pursuing their own self-interest. Hello. Oh yeah, I oh, I think of those. I oh, think sorry, of those I statements. I think of those statements as part of U.S. One of the U.S. Oh, things no. they do. No, yeah. no, that's what the State Department would always say, right? But like, what I'm saying is, even progressive media outlets will speak in those terms, right? Like, right, and they'll Pakistan, take that Pakistan on face value. Being, yeah, Pakistan is not being a trustworthy ally, and you're like, why would you think <laughs> Pakistan would be a trustworthy ally? Not because it's Pakistan, but because, like, what does that mean, trustworthy ally? Everybody has their own national interest, and the Pakistani military doesn't even have a national interest. It has its own interest, I'd say, and it's willing to sacrifice the country. We've seen that over and over again. It's willing to sacrifice the interest, you know, of the Pakistani people. To it's, willing to fight. Whole... it's willing to fight to the, to the last Afghan in Afghanistan. Not only that, it it you know regularly uses the proxies that it's created you know sometimes they do it on their own and sometimes very much like by through direction from above right from their from their military allies that you know they 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 play the role of of spoilers or to muddy the waters or distractions or whatever they're very violent distractions but distractions nonetheless right so, Who pays the political price for the U.S. drone attacks? They must be, they're hugely unpopular, but do people get angry at the Pakistan military about that or do they just sort of... No, so this was the thing that the Pakistani military did that was very smart, okay? Yeah. So it realized very early on that drone um, attacks were unpopular, right? <laughs> uh, because they were tied, because it was a U.S. bombing, right? Um, and I'll talk a little bit about like the complicated reactions to drone strikes in Fata itself, right? But um, you know, in terms of kind of like national level politics, you know, one of one of the things that made Imran Khan uh, uh, popular amongst a certain group of uh, Pakistani nationalists was that he was very anti-drone at a time when nobody else um, on right. the in the um, you know in national.
international politics was taking that on, right? Yeah. Um, but what the Pakistani military did was it told the U.S. that it would provide the U.S. whatever help it needed, right? It would provide the CIA yeah. all the intelligence sure. that it needed. It would provide it with like help, right? So one of the things that you know came um, out during the floods of 2010 in Pakistan, the devastating floods, was yeah. that um, U.S. military helicopters and Pakistani military helicopters were being used in service of the CIA's, um, you know, like drone missions. Rather than providing relief to people who were suffering, um, you know, right. and had been displaced under the flood, so the U.S. the Pakistani military was very much helping the CIA in its like you know yeah. program, but it kept its hands clean. Um, I see. Right. So they the so the CIA did not outsource its drone attacks to the Pakistani military, right? Um, and so you had, and this also then ties in with like the my frustration with Pakistani progressives and their kind of limited way of thinking about what progressive politics means, you know, when I was saying that that was one of the ways in which they are completely, you know, uh, right. kind of corrupted uh, politics in Pakistan, even right. progressive politics in Pakistan by sort of like narrowing the focus. So then it literally became anybody who's fighting the Taliban or anybody who's fight, who sees, sees, is, is seen to be fighting these forces is like a force for good, right? And so, um, you know, Pakistani progressives, very well-known, high-profile Pakistani progressives, sided with the military in its operations, you know, its supposed operations against militants in Fatah, which, you know, people in Fatah and in Swat, uh, when they were happening, were saying that the military did nothing except clear the way for the Taliban to come in and slaughter people, you know. Right. And these progressives were unwilling to hear this. Um, and right. these are progressives who had, you know, built their like reputations on in, on basically fighting the military dictatorship of first Ayub Khan and then Zia right? But they were pro Musharraf because when Musharraf came in, that was his whole enlightened moderation drama, right? Like that's how he had branded yeah. his regime is that he was yeah. the enlightened moderate because and they were like, yeah, we are we support Musharraf because he's not Nawaz Sharif because Nawaz Sharif was bringing in the Sharia bill. And Pervez Musharraf drinks champagne and has dogs. Like literally, this was the level of like you know. He's the kind of guy you can. He's the kind of guy you can have a beer with. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, exactly, exactly. So, and that was the level of their thinking. Like the rest of the country, be damned. I mean, the fact that this is a military regime, the fact that this is an incredibly rapacious military regime, the fact that this is a regime that is again, once again. Um, you know, doing or allying itself with the U.S., uh, you know, in another war in Afghanistan, right? With all yeah. the devastation that that um, was bringing, they had they thought that he was a force for good, you know? I mean, some of them may have said, oh, we're going to hold our nose and um, support him. And some of them didn't even bother to hold their noses, you know? They thought he was the greatest <laughs> thing since sliced bread. Or, you know, it's like all hail the military dictator as long as he's a quote-unquote secular Right. And, you know, he said he'll go on US TV. There was that interview when he was very blunt with the American television interview. And everybody loves it when, like, people, you know, from the world speak back to the US, never mind how rapacious and awful they are to their own people. Yeah. (laughs) They're working for them behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, that's that's always interesting also because it is sort of some home truth, right? Like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, so his time, his time comes really, up. 
his time comes up and so musharraf uh, really again like with dhawal haq um, gains a lot of support even domestically certainly internationally but domestically for his regime um, because of you know the us and other us war in afghanistan right and this time unlike the last time this time progressives in pakistan are supporting him right at least initially and then of course he makes a few blunders like he takes on you know the uh, uh chief justice of the supreme court and oh, yeah. uh, kicks off the you know he, he like he basically like uh, kicks the hornet's nest uh, the you know lawyers in pakistan are not pro yeah. not ever been considered a pro democracy force um because you know in the past like you know chief justices of the supreme court had been well known mostly for signing on to you know justifying military rule right um but uh, but this kind of shifted that a little bit and so i think for the for the first time in a long time um what we saw was the rise of a genuinely not just anti musharraf um you know politics but an anti military uh, politics in pakistan um supported by young people who were uh, you know sort of entering the political sphere for the first time and i think i talk about this in my book also um i see i saw that as coming directly out of what they had observed again during the floods of 2010 because the floods of 2010 were a really transformative time in in pakistan um as well because so many young people from the cities like elite like you know privileged young people from the cities kind of felt like they needed to do something right in terms of relief work and so they actually did a lot of work and so and they saw firsthand the kind of corruption of the military right like how much money and uh, resources the military was swallowing up diverting away from flood relief and i think that really really radicalized them um and that i think is one of the untold kind of stories of the lawyers movement which began as a lawyers yeah. movement but of course became a pro democracy anti military movement right um yeah. and so i mean i i think it's hard for people to understand how amazing it was for us uh, those of us who had you know started to despair um you know for kind of a national level progressive politics during musharraf's time because musharraf was now seen as you know this great like you know secular force yeah. of progressivism that there would ever be an anti military politics in pakistan again and i think you know that was amazing and that is it that really is um part of the story of today and part of the story of imran khan so do you want me to right. kind of skip over yes. and talk about that yeah yeah let's do okay. it so we have so we have all these years so we had you know um, after the lawyers movement we had a national level election of course benazir gets assassinated lots of wheels with between you know within wheels and all of that the people's party wins resoundingly yeah. right yeah. um and you have you know unfortunately unfortunately the first civilian elected government in the history of Pakistan that is allowed to finish a complete term there you, you go there you go you know yeah. not without its problems lots of problems lots of lots of problems but this was a huge landmark and um you know zardari chose to be president uh, rather than prime minister we have a prime ministerial system um he did manage you know despite all his uh, very dodgy politics and 
uh, all of it, he did manage to do some very important or push through some very important things. One of them was something called the 18th Amendment to the Constitution. The 18th mm. Amendment to the Constitution is anathema to the military. Okay. Okay. Because the 18th Amendment uh, basically enshrines the idea that the, that Pakistan is made up of federating units. Okay. Oh, um, okay. And there's a long history of the battle over this as well, right? Um, right. So the pull has been, you know, the military obviously always wants a centralized federal state structure, right? Um, right. Uh, for obvious reasons, one of them being, you know, centralized power, but the second be, being, um, you know, access to the um, exchequer, right? So there's one sure. national pool, right, right? right. Uh, of the national exchequer that the military can then dip into. When you have, uh, you know, when you have what has happened under the 18th Amendment, which is that Pakistan is now considered a federation of federating units, one of the things that you have to do is you have to devolve power and money, right, to the federating mm-hmm. units. And right. so what remains, you know, as a at the federal level, uh, just a few things. One of them is defense. Right. But the Pakistani mm-hmm. military isn't, you know, just drawing its uh, money from yeah, the defense okay. budget. Right. Sure. Also, what that does is that you've made the pie smaller. Right. Very clever. That's very yeah, clever. You made, the, you made the pie smaller. And that has been a huge thorn in its side. And so from the very beginning, it has been trying to. And if you go back, uh, you know, and just sort of look at if you do a search for 18th Amendment in the last year or two, you'll see what a concerted effort the military has been putting in to undermine the 18th, undo the 18th Amendment, right? And the reason for that, like I said, is twofold. It's uh, obviously one has to do with centralizing power, but the biggest story there is about money. It's about the fact that the the pool that the military gets to draw on, even if it eats up the entire pie, that pie is now smaller, right? Sure. Yeah. So, um, so because even edu- education, which is also a small part of the budget, everything is is under the provincial federating unit, right? right. So it's it's that's been one of its goals to undo the 18th Amendment, and that was never going to happen under a national um, democratic politics because right. the that is such a popular uh, amendment, and that the popular support for that is so strong, right? Right. Um, that there was just no way that like any national level party could afford to go against the 18th Amendment and would probably not want to either, right? Right. Um, so, except maybe the parties that are based in the Punjab because the Punjab stands to lose the most, you know, by the 18th Amendment. But right. The, but Punjab yeah. is dominated by, was dominated by the Muslim League of Nawaz Sharif and he's not, you know, going to cut any slack to the military either, Right. 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 So, so those are the two goals. Number one, get rid of Nawaz Sharif. Number two, get rid of the 18th Amendment, right? Yeah. The two main goals. And you see this starting to happen um, during Nawaz Sharif's tenure as prime minister. Okay. Um, and it gains traction when the Panama leaks happen. And the Panama leaks right. kind of reveals that Nawaz Sharif's family, not him himself, but his children, have a bunch of, like, you know, offshore accounts but none there was no right. money laundering case that was ever made it was more like where this anti-corruption thing how did they get the money 
to buy yeah. uh, to you know shares in this corporation and this corporation and ultimately it came down to the fact that they owned um, these luxury apartments in um, london right so the right. the cases i will file against navash is really about like you know him basically anti corruption cases against him right right and they and you know the history of that is also very complicated because there were several cases he was exonerated on many of them and actually only charged on the one um right. which had to do with um, you know where the money came for for this uh, this uh, i think it was a steel mill or a cotton mill i forget which one i think steel mill in saudi arabia al azizia Oh. <laughs> I mean, I just Where yeah. They, the Panama yeah. Papers, if it was what you know, I yeah, I think it worked out very well for them. Oh, it worked out very well for lots of people. Because the thing yeah. is, so the Panama leaks showed like it it had a lot of information, right? Right. But the only case that was pursued under the Panama yeah. leaks in Pakistan exactly. was not the Nawaz Sharif yeah. case. So you were really expecting me to believe that Nawaz Sharif is the only corrupt politician. The only corrupt. I'm so glad corruption yeah. has been eliminated. Yeah, except oh, corruption is completely right. Yeah. And so because this corruption thing, it was like as as it is everywhere in the world. It's like a deeply yeah. reactionary. Uh, political yes. program, right? This anti-corruption. Yeah. It's a very it appeals. Well, to yeah, the, I mean that's the that's middle how, classes, right? Yeah, they um, did the coup against um, Dilma Rousseff in Brazil based yeah. on this corruption. Yeah, stuff. absolutely. You saw that 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 was like one of the major um, kind of uh, platforms for the uh, BJP as well. You know, yeah. initially, yeah. like, and <laughs> yes. you, you had Narendra Modi, Edgewell like, and... you know, with that broom sweeping the streets, right? Like all that kind right. of shit. So you know, and it has a long history, and and especially when it comes to like, you know, military versus, um, uh, yeah. uh you know, democratic parties, yeah. civilian government. It's really the military is always pushing itself in Pakistan and elsewhere. as like the institution that is above corruption and again yeah. as aisha siddiqa and others have you know uh, argued and shown the military is obviously because there's so much money uh, there the most corrupt institution in pakistan as well right by any measure of corruption and by any definition of corruption right yeah. so 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 the anti corruption thing basically becomes this way of undermining you know uh, a very specific you know or, or this kind of like cudgel to beat very specific opponents with if you will right yes. and and for yes. a very specific kind of politics and so that was one of the platforms of imran khan's party right corruption 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 uh, mm. much like draining the swamp was for trump right sure. so of course then you know his party went and uh, collected all these like the worst examples of corrupt you know politicians from all the other parties and yet like the people who supported him you know many of them from my family you know horrifyingly enough salaried middle class my god you know professionally salaried professional middle classes because that anti corruption thing appeals to them so much right um anyway i'm not saying that navashri was not corrupt um show me a person right but it's it's just show anything me, you can always make power, that yeah. show me a person you in can, power or an institution yeah. in power that is not corrupt right so the question so, then becomes why yeah so there was the, so there yeah. was this concerted um you know strategy to get rid of navashri which they yep. did and then they also had a case against him just trying to disqualifying him from ever holding political office and that got kind of scuttled right um right. and then of course you know he uh, when he was sort of jailed for that alazizia case even that so the verdict was kind of murky they just couldn't find they just could they didn't say he was guilty they just said 
the court said that he hadn't adequately satisfied the court that he was innocent and people were like well that's not how <laughs> that's not how you know the court is supposed yeah. to work right like but right. anyway so and then of course he managed to get out of the country because he was not well um and he managed to kind of get clemency to go abroad and he's now abroad but uh, the military is not taking any chances and so what it did um so PTI and Imran Khan had always been spoilers. They were never, never important enough as a national level political party. They managed right. to win in KPK and they made a hash of it, right? So, uh, you know, they, they just, like, you, they couldn't even point to their, like, experience in Khaibar uh, Pakhtunkhwa to say, look, this is what we can do, right? Elect us to power. Right. So they right. had a, you know, they had a strong base of support, like I said, amongst the salaried middle classes and uh, mm-hmm. you know certain kinds of educated young people um who are who were very pro military even though one of his platforms early on was the anti drone platform and he was very he made all these fiery speeches against the military which people love now putting on you know on social media when he goes around saying that nawaz sharif is anti military and people are like um what's this you you know um yeah. but you know this people like to forget these uncomfortable truths so he was not a political force at all in fact even as a spoiler he was one of two um uh basic um potential spoilers <laughs> that the military was kind of trying to um you know build up right and right. then they decided to put their eggs in his basket at some point but right. they couldn't trust that he would win uh, on his own steam and so the elections in pakistan which you know pakistanis being the wags that they are right like the, and, and the, 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 the they're very good with political satire because that's our life right <laughs> our life is political right. satire um they right. they everyone calls that the selections right no one calls it the elections right so and the calls him the selected the selected prime minister right and right. so they made no bones about how they were to ensure his um his win at the polls they well first of all they had put nawaz sharif in jail they had nawaz sharif's brother shahbaz sharif never much of a politician has zero charisma um very much more of a bureaucrat right even yeah. he's the chief minister of punjab and the second in command and all of that just you know was kept i think kept trying uh, hoping that they could be some rapprochement with the military um but the military was not having it and so um the showing the pakistani the sorry the the muslim league nawaz uh, groups showing like they didn't do uh, under shabashi they didn't do the work that they should have done you know although they would yeah. have still won they were still won because the popular support uh, was so high and because the electoral platform that they were going by was um, respect the vote right so literally their slogan was vote ko izzat do right respect the vote right because they knew that these shenanigans these shenanigans were open in lahore which is the home base of the sharif uh, family right in lahore yeah. um justin i was there during uh, those horrible days oh. of the election the mm-hmm. entire city was full of only pti um banners oh. and flyers people right. were constantly taking you know uh, and posting you know videos of uh, like police in uniform taking down flyers of opposition parties right ppp and the navashi right so all you saw everywhere was the uh, pti's you know uh, election propaganda 
and that in itself would not have you know changed the outcome then they went and they made sure that the votes that were cast uh, they threw out, you know, all the things that yeah. you can imagine. All the, cheating. Votes, all, <laughs> all the cheating. All the possible all ways. All the cheating. possible ways in which they could cheat to make, to literally right. push this guy across the finish line. The kind of, the way that people are like, like, you know, progressives are trying to kind of shove Biden across the finish line. Yeah. You know, they're like, dude, you're not going to make it on your own, you know. Um, so that's the story of our current government. Yes. Which is really, and so the, the regime that we have in place as, you know, political analysts in Pakistan have been saying from the minute it happened is that this is now the first hybrid regime um, that <laughs> the military has concocted. Where Because they've learned right. their lesson. You know, yeah. they've learned their lesson. They've learned that every time they come into power, they are hounded out in the most humiliating yeah. way possible. Right. right? And uh, th- and that has especially stung the Musharraf, the anti-Musharraf uh, movement, you know, which then turned into, like I said, the anti-military movement, um, has had like, you know, has stung them really badly, really, really badly. And then the internal contradictions of the ongoing war in Afghanistan and yeah. the, the military's efforts to kind of maintain its, you know, Pakistani military's efforts to maintain its like, you know, uh, leverage in Afghanistan and also kind of control democratic progressive forces within Pakistan has birthed the single most important progressive movement in Pakistani politics in recent decades, which is, oh. and if, if your listeners don't know about this movement, even though I think it got like written about once or twice in the New York Times, they need to go look up the PTM, the Pashtun Tahafuz Movement, uh, which translates into the, the Pashtun uh, Protection Movement. Wow. And so that movement is basically a grassroots movement coming out of the former FATA, right? Former, yeah, it's former it's now it's been absorbed into um, the state of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, the province of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. Right. But, you know, your listeners will know uh, of it as, as FATA and particularly Waziristan, right? Which was ground right. zero, is still ground zero ground. for the war on terror and drone attacks yeah. and the military operations, countless military operations. And the Pashtun Tahafuz movement has been very categorical. I mean, you know, even though it is, uh, it carries the label of Pashtun, because of the, uh, because of its clear anti-military politics, right? Because of its very, very explicit calling out of the Pakistani military um, for um, creating and nurturing the Taliban. Right. And for using right. the Taliban against the people of Fatah and Waziristan, and wow. for and for through their own military operations, humiliating and um, you know controlling the people of Fatah, right? Yeah. And outside That's of Fatah right. too, because you know Karachi, the thing that really brought the, the PTM started, um, you know, in a small way, I think as far back as 2014. But it really became, you know, it came to the forefront in terms of national politics in 2018, I think, um, when uh, this young man, this young Pashtun student uh, in Karachi, Karachi, which is like actually the biggest Pashtun city in Pakistan in terms of the oh, number, wow. the number <laughs> not, of Pashtuns. Not Peshawar. No, not wow. Peshawar, because it's, Karachi is so much bigger, right? Yeah, so the population, yeah. and, and, and because, you know, Everybody goes to Karachi for in terms of um, you know for for uh, employment and for right. 
studies and all that because you know campus of those were so underfunded um so this young man was killed in an you know a fake encounter by one of the top cops uh, in uh, karachi right who was then absolved of all uh, responsibility and so that like kind of you know really gave this um produced this upsurge of anger right um yeah. you know and so the the ptm has been it has been such a breath of fresh fresh air in pakistani wow. politics because they you know consistently it, number one they are very very consciously um a peaceful movement right and right. you know we all have our troubles with like these kinds of like usage of the term peace yeah. like but if you're going after them if you're going after the military establishment yes. it's probably a good and strategy also, they are very they are very very conscious of uh the fact that the the stereotype you right. know, uh, of the students has yeah. uh, you know this this very malignant stereotype of pashtuns as yeah. these militant crazies right mm-hmm. that you know like it's just astonishing to me that like liberal elites uh, in in like islamabad and lahore and karachi have had no trouble in the past talking about like mi- militancy and extremism as being you know somehow like na- coming naturally to uh, yeah that's just that's just british british imperial british imperial racism absolute like, complete, pure, like you know internalization of these british the very convenient british um you know stereotypes yeah. and orientalist stereotypes right martial racism uh, martial racism well the but but, but the punjab the punjabis are the martial race that's okay but the tribals yeah yeah tribal. the tribals right so you know therefore less uh, developed less progressive all that kind of bullshit and so they have uh, and the young man who um, is leading this this movement they have been very very conscious about maintaining yeah. that they are a peaceful movement of pashtuns right um and yeah precisely because they're going up against the military right and the military keeps trying to force them into and kind of trying to stage confrontations which you know um they um are, are very very you know careful yeah. to steer clear of um and you can imagine yeah, having a a people's a solid people's movement that in, and they you know they are building they are not coming out of nowhere either they are building yeah. on the work um around enforced disappearances right. that uh, you know the families of the disappeared uh, started in balochistan right so that was right. another gift that musharraf um, left us with is enforced disappearances right, right? Yeah. and enforced disappearances have become the military's go to right now to the point where anybody anywhere in pakistan right like they're no longer yeah. out in the tribal regions um yeah. it's solidly now amongst like you know uh, democratic liberal uh, progressive uh, you know civil society groups in in islamabad karachi lahore journalists number one target uh, for right. disappearances right? right so so they're building oh. on, on the anger around that right because yeah. you know there's there's this sort of now a nation they're building a nationwide movement essentially right that is at its core a deep critique of the military and a deep critique not just of the military the military got things wrong but a deep critique of the military as the villain yeah. right wow that's a, that's a that's that's a movement whose time has come that's oh incredible. my god and what is incredible has been just how it continues to grow 
and how it continues to draw the most amazing crowds under the kind of repression that we are seeing in Pakistan today, which, you know, is way worse than it has been under even the military in the past, right? Mm-hmm. Because now they have this completely incompetent fascist in charge, mm-hmm. right? Imran Khan, who literally wow. doesn't know his head from his ass, right? And It's so interesting because Wiki... Wikipedia yeah. loves Imran Khan. Oh, because, you, you know, can I tell you why? <laughs> because the people, the, the young people who are very supportive of the PTI, that form kind of the the yeah. base of the PTI, um, you know, like uh, support, yeah. right, are the, are very savvy Techno, with social media. Yeah. And they're very technical. They're all, yeah, they're technocratic. Yeah. And they're deeply tech savvy and social media savvy. And so the... PTI has had the best social media strategy of any yeah. party in Pakistan, right? And they, you know, in terms of trolling, like they don't even need to hire people to troll. I mean, even though they have hired yeah. people to troll, honestly, they actually have a social media. Yeah, team that you got to have some, you got to have some oh, yeah, kind yeah. of. But there's a lot of voluntary troll. trolling. There's so much <laughs> voluntary trolling going on is what I'm saying, right? Um, so... PTM mm-hmm. uh, against Imran Khan. Imran Khan is a hybrid, uh, hybrid military civilian rule. Mm-hmm. And now, uh, well, if you if you want to finish what you were saying about PTM, but then then you you still have to answer my China question yes. and my. Yes, yes. And then so PTM. the PTM isn't um, doesn't really care about Imran Khan um, per se except that Imran Khan is the civilian face of the military right now because of the hybrid regime, right? So the PTM is explicitly like critical of the military um, because right. of the way in which the military has created, um, you know, these, it created the Taliban and it uses them against civilians. Um, it uh, regularly under the cover of the war on terror humiliates people living in the tribal areas. It considers Pashtuns everywhere in Pakistan to be potential terrorists, right? Especially now that PTM as a movement has become so popular. Um, you know, now every Pashtun is associated with the PTM, which is not a bad thing. They probably do support it. Um, and the, But the PTM is constantly being referred to as, you know, terrorist or uh, violent. So or... there's, dis- there's, there's discrimination against Pashtuns mm-hmm. in Pakistan on this basis. Absolutely. Oh, wow. mm-hmm. I mean, the the fact is that, you know, there is, uh, like in all countries, there is a pretty healthy dose of uh, racism or ethnocentrism. And uh, the Punjabis are the ruling group, basically, right? So right. The, the province of the Punjab is also the richest province. Um, mm-hmm. And so all uh, the other provinces have legitimate grievances against uh, Punjab and the center, which in their minds sure. is unsurprisingly the same thing. So, yeah. you know, so uh, the, the Baloch are all, have the same grievances. In fact, Balochistan is the, since we're talking about CPEG, might as well start talking about Balochistan, you know, is the yeah. Balochistan that, uh, sorry, it's the province that is the least developed, um, you know, the Pakistan, no Pakistani government has ever considered it important to invest any money in Balochistan. Um, the Baloch have... And there have been waves of insurgency mm-hmm, there mm-hmm. and counterinsurgency. So, again, for very the valid reasons. 
Um, yeah. You know, some of it having to do with the fact that uh, many Baloch back in the day felt like they were not actually, uh, they had not chosen to join the, the federation that came to be called Pakistan and that they sort of got lumped in, right? So there was, there was always some kind of disease, but that was not helped by the um, establishment, which was initially, you know, dominated by bureaucrats and then under Ayub Khan, you know, in the 1950s came to be basically military, mostly military. Um, but yeah. so you have this highly, highly underserved province, you know, it, it's it's the lowest um, out of all uh, the provinces of Pakistan on all human development indicators, right? And the kind of grievances are so stark in terms of, um, and the disparities, you can sort of get a sense of the, the sort of injustice of it. Uh, if you think about the fact that uh, Balochistan, you know, has many, many natural resources, but one of the natural resources that has been very important for uh, Pakistan has been natural gas. Right. And so, uh, but, and, and not the Pakistan's natural gas resources, uh, were all coming uh, based in Sui, which is a region of Balochistan. But Balochistan right. was the one province that did not have access to piped natural gas, which, I mean, I don't know if this is equally hmm. true of the other provinces of Pakistan, but certainly going up in Punjab and going up in Lahore, like that was just a fact of life. Piped natural gas was just right. part of life. So, you know, so their grievances are of, like, at many different levels, culturally, politically, economically, um, very, very legitimate grievances. And then, of course, because of all kinds of movements for uh, civil rights, including insurgencies, right? Balochistan um, yeah. yeah. has also been um, at the receiving end of a lot of... Uh, repression from the state, right? right? Political, like civilian governments, as well as uh, the military, and increasingly, of course, the military, right? So the issue of disappearances, as I was talking about, you know, uh, has been incredibly acute in Balochistan. And in Balochistan, the Pakistani military very deliberately, because the insurgencies and all the Baloch movements have always been very, very um, explicitly secular. Um, and nationalists, Baloch nationalists, but very secular. And as a way of undermining that, the Pakistani military very deliberately gave space to um, jihadist and extremist Sunni groups in Balochistan. Right. So, you know, the attacks on the Hazara, you guys may have heard of the, um, yeah. the Shia minority of the Hazara that are also an ethnic uh, minority in Balochistan. All of that unrest comes directly from the machinations of the Pakistani military. Enter then uh, China. Okay. Um, now but, we're ready. Yes, now we're ready. I promised you. <laughs> I promised you the China. Thing. Yeah, yeah. So, so China has been involved in kind of extraction of natural resources uh, with, you know, entering into agreements with the Pakistani state for several years now, probably several decades now. And the initial sort of, um, there was an initial backlash about 10 years ago onwards, uh, precisely around this issue of gas pipelines. So Baloch insurgents uh, attacked Chinese engineers and blew up, you know, uh, various parts of the gas pipeline. 
and that was already part of like you know the 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 sort of uh, introduction of china to balochistan was very much part of china's uh, belt and railroad initiatives right of which right. you yep. know apparently pakistan uh, the project in pakistan called cpec the china pakistan economic corridor um is like a flagship project for china yeah and it's incredibly important because included in as a you know major prize in that project is the uh deep sea port of gwadar which right. is in balochistan so right. you know the pakistani state with uh, you know when we say that we generally do mean that the military has a very big role to play in it has been developing the port of gwadar and uh, that port has now of course geopolitical significance right because it is a warm water port and deep water you know port but of course like with every other project in balochistan um the baloch have been kept out they are not the ones yeah. that are given jobs of any sort whether as engineers or as low level workers people are brought over from punjab to do that and so that has yeah. you know increased the right. kind of anger a very legitimate anger of the people of balochistan but basically right. to come to your question about the chinese um you know where does china fit in with the yeah like how does how does pakistan uh you know manage a, a relationship with china this and the perfect. us this is you know yeah. there is this as far as the as far as the pakistani establishment is concerned this is great yeah. because you see going back to what i was saying earlier the pakistani military has always benefited um particularly from the you know 1970s uh you know war proxy war in afghanistan onwards from uh the fact that the us has a geopolitical interest in afghanistan right so first it was yeah. that the, you know beating back the soviets then it was uh, the war on terror which now you know like the us is desperately trying to get out of but can't seem to right and so we are now mm. in the middle of like these new peace talks with uh, in afghanistan between the taliban and the and the afghanistan um uh government right government. and no matter what happens because of this long you know game that pakistan has played in afghanistan uh you know nurturing the taliban creating the taliban um providing them safe haven even now yeah now the, the taliban are the good guys now the taliban well, are fighting always, the islamic yeah, so state no, no matter what yeah. happens pakistan always yeah. has leverage right vis-a-vis the yeah, us yeah. which is you know what i was saying initially too when you hear a lot of like you know this kind of uh, spurned lover kind of you know rhetoric yeah. coming from the us state department about how pakistan is not like you know meeting it's yeah. like you know um it's living up to its part of the bargain why is it that pakistan can afford to do that like if pakistan like what is pakistan in the grand scheme of things right like it economy is shoddy it's like you know it's it's a state that refuses to serve the needs of its uh, population is actively suppressing them right again not unusual yeah. i'm not saying i, I yeah, certainly don't want to play into this idea yeah. of like oh my god pakistan is so uniquely fucked up but like what is it that allows pakistan to like get its way you know it can get yeah. its way because they you know the pakistani military is so deeply entrenched in uh you know afghanistan the american and program yeah. yeah and as you know and of course afghans don't want that the afghans want pakistan yeah. out 
So there is that. And then, of course, India has been trying um, very hard to kind of uh, drive a rift uh, or, or use that to its adva- advantage, the fact that, you know, the Afghan politicians do not like uh, the Pakistani military's role in uh, Afghan yeah. affairs. Um, and so then, but the problem is, of course, that, you know, so the, here I think the maybe, I don't know to what extent the um, the FATF issue that you were bringing up plays in, but, but basically, um, and we can talk about that in a second, but basically having China put in this level of investment into Pakistan yeah. economically makes Pakistan feel more secure, and particularly the establishment. And of course, right. and the CPEC is now completely controlled by the military, right? Um, it started right. off as a project under the Nawaz Sharif government, yeah. but like it's very much now under, you know, uh, unsurprisingly yeah, and Ch- and under military China's, control. China's- China's whole thing is we don't interfere with China what doesn't you do give a fuck, internally. right? I mean, look at what China is doing to its own, like, and in fact, China that's their whole thing. China is yeah. worried about like uh, Islamic militancy or you know, yeah, uh, yeah, this this kind of militancy in Pakistan because it is concerned with the Xi'an province, which is like right across the border, right? So right. I think they are concerned about um, this kind of law at the level of law and order, right? Like they want, sure. they want yeah, order. That's their thing. They want order yeah. uh, because they have a lot like of sunk costs now in Pakistan, and also because politically, mm. like what happens uh, within Pakistan has an impact on the parts of China. That yeah, China I mean, uh, you know, the U.S. Itself. the U.S. wants chaos, and China wants order. That's just yeah. That's, I mean, the U.S. They... The, the, yeah, the U.S. doesn't <laughs> care because the U.S. doesn't have that kind of uh, economic investment. In Pakistan, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, and I don't know to what extent the U.S. wants chaos either because they're trying so hard now to get out of the quagmire of Afghanistan. So, you really think that, eh? I don't, no, I do think. I, don't, I mean, I think it's... Yeah. Because I think that... Um, I mean, it's not as if that is going to mean the end of the war on terror, right? No, I just... Yeah, I just think that's... That just uh, you you might be right. It just I sounds to me like everybody's like, always trying to get out, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, just it's, so Yeah, yeah, but that's that's the thing is that um but you know they're trying to get out even at a time when that's not necessarily the rhetoric that is useful for them politically. So under Obama that was very much Obama's liberal imperialism, right? Afghanistan was the yeah. bad war. Uh, sorry, no, Afghanistan was the good that's the interesting thing. Afghanistan was the good war. And even then he wanted sure you know, to eventually get, because it is sucking up a whole lot of money, right? So, yeah. um, if well, the US wants that money, they would no, just go US, somewhere else, The US generally they? wants yeah. to sell weapons, right? That's what the US imperialist yeah. game is. The US wants to sell weapons. Right. The US is going to be able to sell weapons no matter what, because it has, yeah. you know, ensured right. that there is plenty of, like, if nothing else, economic unrest all across the world, right? Right. And so it's happy to shore up the fascist regimes everywhere, right? It's happy to give them weapons to use against their own people because it's busy doing that here too, right? It's busy selling weapons to police departments, you know, military-grade weaponry to police departments in the U.S. as well. So I think that yeah, there is, there is at least, uh, let's just say that I think that there is a certain section of the U.S. Um, military elite that would want to remove themselves from, like, the level of engagement that they have with Afghanistan right now, right? right. Um, it's not like they have like a, have a couple of bases there, like uh, 
But I think like that, they have in Korea. Yeah, I mean, I would think they would like to be able to declare some kind of stupid victory, right? Um, right because right. I think people really are like tired of the war, right? They're tired of. Um, they're not tired of imperialist wars in general. They're not tired of their imperialism, you know. But um, right. they, you know, it does start to wear on a population when they're, you know, when people are constantly being sent off to war yeah, and deployed again yeah. and deployed again, right? So I think it does hurt yeah. their uh, the kind of political base to some extent. And I don't know to what extent they even take these things into account. But okay, let's just say that. Uh, you know, we, we can, yeah, whatever, whatever, whatever it is. Honestly, it doesn't yeah. even matter uh, to the yeah. issues that we're discussing here because the issue yeah, is that the U.S. Absolutely. is stuck in Afghanistan, whether it wants to be there or doesn't want to be there, it's there, right? Yeah. And as long yeah. as it's there, um, it's and it's always going to want to have control, right? Because geostrategically yeah. important place, right? Um, yeah. but right now it has no no control at all. That's the thing. It just yeah. the good, the good, the good offices of Pakistan are its only. Uh, yeah, hope and, for and that also they there. know that Pakistan is like it's not something <laughs> that they can control completely. So they keep kind of you know, yeah. hence that dance that keeps happening. So right. so you have all of that going on, which is again you know if anybody is benefiting or has been benefiting from that war in Afghanistan, it's been the Pakistani military, right? Let's be absolutely sure. of course. They're, yeah. they're the from, from who don't care yeah. whether the US stays or goes. Having the U.S. Absolutely. be there helps them because as long as the U.S. is there, it's going to need the Pakistani military, right? Yeah. yeah. If they go, they're going to try and use the Pakistani military as a proxy, right? Right. So, they, yeah, they can't until until Afghanistan is like truly sovereign and and makes also its in their back pocket, which may or may not happen. Which you know, if like yeah. you know, the will of the people prevails, hopefully that would not happen yeah. in Afghanistan. That's the only. That's the only way. Right. Pakistan's military would be right, out of but there. they know yeah. very well that if they leave, they will leave it in such condition that uh, yeah. they will always have, you know, through Pakistan, have uh, yeah. some kind of a foothold, right? And of course, the Pakistani military has its own interest, so it's not like it's going to mindlessly follow the yeah. U.S. project. But that's so that's that thing that's going on, and the Pakistani military has enriched itself enormously, Immensely. enormously. Um, and also, you know, really grown in terms of its power. Like I was saying, you know, it has like using these anti-terrorism laws and using yeah. just the, the rhetoric, you know, ironically using that terror, the, the rhetoric of anti-terrorism, you know, has managed to kind of increase the levels of repression everywhere in order to, um, you know, just try and destroy genuinely like pro-democracy people's movements, right? Hence, Using the the yeah. rhetoric of like anti terrorism against the Pashtun Tahrir movement, right? Um, using yeah. it against the Baloch movements, uh, various kinds of Baloch movements. Now increasingly using it even in the Punjab, right? Um, right. Because the unrest is going across the board. Um, so so that's that part of the game. And then China then comes in first. So Pakistan is so deeply in the hole in terms of like international debt, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's it's right. economy is faltering, and because of all this like deep political unrest, and like you know, in the middle of all of this, all of this like you know, the vigilantism around blasphemy laws and the killing of Shias and the killing mm -hmm. of Emadis, like none of it is like great for foreign yeah. investment, right? If that's what you're looking right. for. So, yeah. and because the military is unwilling and sometimes unable to control these forces, you know, you are just yeah. that, that that's where you are. 
And so then when you have China come along and say, right. you know, here, we're going to build these, you know, we're going to do these infrastructure projects and we're going to give you this right. much money for them, you know, it's great, right? Especially because that becomes right. another way for the military to pocket more money, right? And also get to, I think, I mean, it hasn't happened yet in that way, but, you know, I'm, I wouldn't be surprised if there is, if it, because it gives them even more leverage vis-a-vis the Americans, right? Americans. But I'm wondering if the, I mean, I know in throughout Latin America and Africa, they're try, the Americans are trying to get people to, um, you know, sign up to some alternative American projects. Uh, but I haven't seen the U.S. The offer anything in Pakistan, right? <laughs> right. right. So, I mean, <laughs> not even, like, you know, two like, two less drone strikes a year yeah, or something? Yeah, it's not even... Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and the thing is, you know, drone strikes okay. are so... They're, they're so fraught because um, there are actually... There's a section of the Pashtun population that actually supports drone strikes. I mean, forget right, the liberals right, in Pakistan yeah. that were all... Yeah you know, gung-ho for right. both military operations and drone strikes, even if they were CIA drone strikes, right? Because yeah. they right. actually were willing to buy the idea that drone strikes are surgical and that they get the people that they are after. And But it's actually a very cold calculation, like I said, even for Pakistani liberals, because for many of them, right. you know, all of these were like just um, outside of the law, tribal societies that were militant and ungovernable and you know all the colonial tropes yeah. that you can think of yeah. and so you know who who cares if you didn't get like mullah x that you were trying to get with your drone strike the people you got were probably terrorists anyway you know so okay so now the this weapon now the u.s may have may not have that many tools of leverage but this fatf mm-hmm. business this financial action task force? The is financial action financial, task force. Mm-hmm. It's financial action. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I've, I have, you know, I don't fully understand. I, I gather that it's super important. Well, it is in Pakistan. the sense. Okay. So it's, it's <laughs> at important least in the media. In the sense, it's, yeah. It's important in the yeah. sense that, um, that, so basically this is the, this is the international body for monitoring, um, flows of, uh, uh, money laundering activity, right? Right. So dark money and all that. So, and like all these international bodies, I mean, you look at it and who's on the, you know, it's mostly these, uh, you know, northern countries plus a few other countries. India's on it. Pakistan is not on it, right? Um, so there's right. so there's those kinds of geopolitics at play as well because India is constantly kind of pushing to have uh, Pakistan be penalized um, because Pakistan okay. has not. So India. Pushing. You know, the fact is that, that there are, we all know that there is immense amounts of money laundering happening. There's immense amounts of money flowing uh, into all kinds of terrorist um, organizations everywhere, right? right? So, and, then, and then to these British offshore possessions oh, like the Cayman Islands oh, and, yeah, right? right. Absolutely. So, you know, like with all of these instruments, you would like it to be something that's applied equally across the board and it it yes. isn't but on the other hand Obviously. if you think about mm. it i mean we all know like what the game is in pakistan in terms of the pakistani military and its relationship yeah, right. to money you know how is it like able to like create these proxies and sometimes you know there's there's so little clarity obviously because it's dark money about where like even yeah. specific groups 
are getting their money. So not maybe directly even through the military, but directly through Saudi Arabia, right? So right, I mean, number one, right. we would love. I think everybody should be focusing on like Saudi Arabia. If we are like actually serious yeah. about ending, you know, so-called Islamic terrorism, then you know, really, right. we need to be talking That's about it. Saudi Arabia, right? So. Right. Well, we'll see that ever going to happen because you know, look <laughs> yeah, at how breath. important is Saudi Arabia, you know, to the U.S.'s like geostrategic goals is very important, right? Like it's very important yeah. to Israel, right? So, yeah. so we all know what yeah. the story with that is. It's almost it's it's inseparable. It's yeah, like, it's like so then yeah, that's Britain why it's, or... but there is this game constantly being played about like oh now you're on the blacklist now you're on the gray list, right? Um, yeah. And of course, China is also one of the members of FATF, which means that China. Oh, so they're defending. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And China is actually going. So if not it. if it hasn't already become the um, whatever the the leading uh, country is called the uh, president or whatever uh, of the FATF. Okay. I think it was on track to be the the leading be leading FATF. Okay. So you know that again kind of throws a whole different um, you know like spoke into into those wheels because then you're talking about yeah. uh you know the if it if it's just specifically talking about Pakistan and the FATF you have India on one side you have China on another side right so Pakistan I think has been <laughs> right. doing fairly well right because what okay. the, what being okay. on the blacklist for the FATF means is that you are not going to get um foreign investment um either right. direct foreign investment or um you know world bank imf loans right so those kinds of conditionalities are also tied to it but because you know and this has been this has been the tragedy of the pakistani people is that yeah. we that pakistan ha- is or has become the military has ensured that it has become such an important geostrategic player even if it's a small right. player like it's a spoiler it's a player in the sense that yep. it has the potential to spoil the game right um yeah and so well, i don't think of pakistan as a small player i think you know it's, it's what a small is it 200 million people that, no no not small in those sense in that sense i'm talking about yeah. small in terms of like military might and things like that like you know like right. um so but the fact that it's precisely because it has this leverage and it has this leverage right. because of the you know us's unending great game in you know yes. the central asian region yeah. um yeah if that wasn't the case then you know we wouldn't have a military on steroids the way that we do now right yeah we wouldn't right. have had a military that constantly keeps getting this like fresh supply of oxygen um you know mm-hmm. every time there is a new war that the us wants to fight in afghanistan right yeah. um yeah. and you know we would have probably have had a very different like country and very different politics on the ground i mean i'm not saying we would necessarily have been some kind of utopia but you know if you look back on the entire history of this country you know certainly from the time that the military coup the first military coup happened in 1968 but definitely from the jawal hak period onwards um you yeah. know the this geostrategic you know importance thanks to the us's interest in Afghanistan and yeah. Central Asia has been like toxic for us yeah. right yeah yeah and it's totally it's empowered that group oh absolutely over everybody else absolutely yeah. 
Wow. Okay, I feel I feel kind of caught up now. Okay, good. <laughs> we came back. I was stuck in the. I was stuck in the Musharraf era. Yeah, you know? no, we needed to go and through that I'm, because not, yeah. you know, uh, just like some things don't make sense unless you understand the Aulhak, with the Aulhak period. Other things don't make sense unless you understand what happened on the Musharraf, right? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I, yeah, I just I've been so um, depressed watching. India, that oh God, um, yeah. you know, I, I haven't. Uh, yeah, I haven't, haven't had a chance to be depressed watching Pakistan. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't taken the time out to study Pakistan and get depressed about that. So, thank you, yeah. thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think that um, you know the 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 thing in Pakistan also is that there's always the and this is what gets overlooked so often, right? Is that there are always these like movements. Um, for social justice and for um, civil rights, like in a very deep sense that are raging, you know. And yeah. I think for us, uh, for many of us, um, the emergence of the PTM onto the national stage in 2018, um, you know, has just been such an important, like, it's almost like life-saving, you know, because yeah. it, it really is, it encapsulates you know, in its in its politics, right? Like it encapsulates all the contradictions of Pakistan, and it, and and because of who they are, because they are, you know, the base is Pashtun from Waziristan and the the yeah, former Fata region. Brilliant. You know, their struggle really kind of blows, up, you know, implodes this whole like you know sort of posturing of the military, right? As the saviors, yeah, yeah. as this, like the only, the last, like uh, stand, you know, like the last, like force standing between, like you know, uh, ordinary people and terrorists. Because you know what their slogan is? It's a, it's a slogan mm-hmm. that is that pre-exists the PTM, but their slogan yeah. is uh, that they, they that they took up very consciously and is now associated with them is um, in you know you know to its. Uh, and this, that slogan basically says that behind this terrorism is the uniform and the uniform, right. uniform the military That's uniform fantastic. right i mean you yeah. cannot be more explicit than that right That's great so yeah, it's not saying that the military it, is unable to control right the terrorists. To... It's not saying that yes it's saying the military yes. is behind Armed. the terrorists yeah yeah yeah, you know, I, I've had, I, I've had, a, I've had this, <laughs> I've had this critique of conspiracy theories, you know, <laughs> my whole life, and then every once in a while, uh-huh. you know, no, the thing is, turns that, out you know, that, Justin, yeah. is that um, we are all we are all like annoyed by certain kinds of conspiracy theories, right? Yeah, but that doesn't mean that conspiracies don't exist, right? Yeah, and there's I, conspiracies. I, you know, and there's... that's always the that's always the sort of like difficulty for those of us on yeah. the left, right? Is to, yeah. is that we know we actually know that there are wheels within wheels within wheels, and yeah. we know that yeah. there are conspiracies. We know who the conspirators are, right? Yeah. Uh, but then yeah. we get lumped in, you know. Yeah, with the exactly. Poop, it's just, you know, with QAnon type of like conspiracies, you know, that's like we're not talking yeah. about that. Uh, you know, we're talking about like you know shady players who are 
conspiring. Yeah, like like Jeffrey Epstein, right? Yeah. Like if you just if you just describe what Jeffrey Epstein is mm-hmm. and does mm-hmm. to to a to a person who doesn't know, you sound like the most yeah. you know bizarre <laughs> un- <laughs> conspiracy theorist. Absolutely, and it's just yeah. Wow. All right, so Sadia, thank you so much. Yeah, so, so oh, what, no, just you... as a way of like signing off. So, so you know, yeah. keep an eye on Pakistan and keep an eye on the PTM because the, the PTM has really opened up the space for democratic politics because they speak in the language of civil rights, equal civil rights. Yeah. And now um, the other, you know, force that's emerging politically is a coalition of uh, national parties of which Nawaz Sharif's uh, uh, okay. PML is uh, a part. Uh, the PPP is there. Uh, the uh, Jamiyat uh, uh, Ulama Islam, the JUI, um, long-standing mm-hmm. big, you know, religious, uh, religiously inclined political party, big player also. They are all parts of this, and they are all actively taking on the slogans of the PCM and speaking to the issue of enforced disappearances, you know, which, again, is completely linked with the military and the intelligence agencies. There was a huge, they've had two or three really huge uh, jalsas recently, and in the last one, uh, Navasri was speaking from London remotely, and people are still like, like you know, in shock over this. And he openly, by name, called out uh, members of the military establishment. Wow! So you know, so these are kind yeah, of unprecedented times uh, yeah, in, in Pakistan. That's amazing. Yeah. So there is always, you know, there's hope, and we like we struggle, and then those like we get pushed back, and like that's the nature of our progressive politics, as we were, right? But just to say that oh, there is yeah. there is a there is a ray of hope um, that you know of course the military is going to try and crush as much as it can, but I don't think it's going to really be. I think it's going to be. Well, problem. they have to try. Yeah, well, they definitely try. <laughs> Come on, this is their existential crisis. You know, yeah. you have a you have a you have a civil rights movement that is has explicitly been saying that you are the people behind the terrorists, and it is an yeah. incredibly popular movement. Uh, you know, nationally now, right? And now you have this emergence of democratic parties who, because they see that the goal of the military is to completely destroy any hope of, you know, uh, democratic politics in Pakistan. These are not people who really care about the people either necessarily, right? These are politicians. But they no, see their own self-interest. They yeah. see their own, but they are, they are important because they, yeah. when they, when they play electoral politics, they do have to respond to real people's concerns right exactly so yeah. always 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 uh, you know democratic dispensation even if it's not completely left-wing or not left-wing at all is so far preferable to any kind of military dispensation as you know right right so yeah. anyway i will leave you with that some hope um yeah you should you should be become the anti-empire project special pakistan oh, correspondent <laughs> Okay, so I'll, uh, sign I'll I'll sign you up. Sign up. I'll, uh, I'll 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 talk to our people and see whether we can <laughs> okay. find a, a space yes, for you. Yes. We'll go retire <laughs> to your smoky back room. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Where you have your conspiracies. <laughs> Thank you, Sadie. You're very welcome, Justin. It was, a, it was um, great fun to talk to you. <laughs>